Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, head of thought leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on December 2nd, 2021. With us to provide their latest views are Alan Lee, Managing Director and Head of Guggenheim's Municipal Bonds Sector Team, and Paul Dozier, a Director in the Macroeconomic and Investment Research Group. I also had a conversation with Brian DePaolo, a Director and Portfolio Manager for Corporate Loan Strategies. We will be looking at several issues today. First, the tide is shifting at the Fed, as even dovish members are considering accelerating the taper process to tamp down inflationary pressures. If that weren't enough to spook the markets, the new Omicron variant is also weighing on investors' minds. Paul Dozier will give us an updated view on the outlook from here. Second, the municipal bond market has seen its share of volatility in recent months, and here to tell us about headwinds and tailwinds for performance from here, including credit fundamentals, is Alan Lee. And third, Three of our flagship mutual funds reached their 10-year track record on November 30th, including Guggenheim Total Return Bond, GIB, Macro Opportunities, GIO, and Floating Rate Strategies, GIF. An important asset class to GIF is bank loans, and I caught up with Brian DePaolo, a portfolio manager for Corporate Loan Strategies, to talk about this market. To begin with an update on the economy, let's bring in Paul Dozier from our Macroeconomic and Investment Research Group. Paul, take it away. Thanks, Jay. Last week, U.S. data pointed to strong fourth quarter growth, but developments overseas continue to indicate a fourth COVID wave is underway, possibly with the help of a new variant. U.S. third quarter GDP was revised slightly higher to 2.1%, driven entirely by personal consumption. That said, it was personal consumption that led to subdued growth during the third quarter in the first place, as people curtailed spending in the midst of the Delta variant-driven third COVID wave during late summer and early fall. But fourth quarter growth is shaping up to be much stronger, with some forecasts as high as 7%. And once again, personal consumption is helping set the tone, with a much bigger month-over-month gain in real personal spending in October of 0.7%. Consumer spending continues to be bolstered by tight labor market conditions. Initial jobless claims declined by more than 70% during the week ending November 13th, settling at 199,000, its lowest print since 1969. Firms are clearly holding on to workers the best they can in the midst of the tight job market, with layoffs and discharges at record lows. Durable, good, durable goods orders for October declined by half a percent but the decline was driven in large part by volatile non-defense aircraft orders. Stripping that component out, month-over-month durable goods orders grew by a respectable half a percent. But even more notable in the report was the strength in inventory investment. And finally, the goods trade balance for October was significantly stronger than expected, as goods exports surged during the month, particularly in industrial supplies, capital goods, and autos and automobile components. Taking the strength in consumer spending, inventory investment, and net exports into consideration, the fourth quarter is shaping up to be a strong one for growth. 
and Fed officials appear to be reacting accordingly. Minutes from the Fed's November meeting indicated that FOMC participants considered a faster taper than the $15 billion per month ultimately decided. Chairman Powell appeared to indicate an openness to accelerating the taper at that meeting. And all of that was prior to the recent spate of strong data. More recently, we've heard from Fed Vice Chair Clarida, Governor Waller, and Atlanta Fed President Bostic, suggesting the Fed could speed up the taper. Of note, comments last week by San Francisco Fed President Daly, widely considered one of the more dovish members of the FOMC, also suggested an openness to a faster taper. Strong fourth quarter growth and the Fed's willingness to react accordingly open the possibility for a shorter and faster taper and Fed rate hikes coming sooner than expected, just a few short weeks ago, barring any unforeseen curveballs. But speaking of curveballs, last week, scientists announced the discovery of a new COVID variant with several mutations that may make it highly transmissible. Cases of the variant are clustered in South Africa but have been discovered as far afield as Hong Kong and Israel. The US, UK, and several other countries have already imposed travel restrictions from South Africa and neighboring countries. Others are likely to follow. Financial markets responded accordingly on Friday, with equities indexes down in the US by more than 2%, while those in Europe sold off by more than 4%. Oil markets were hit particularly hard given the possible negative impact on travel and transport with Brent crude down almost 12% on Friday. Meanwhile, Treasuries rallied with 10-year Treasury yields lower by 16 basis points, settling at 1.47%. We're still learning about the variant, but if it proves as transmissible as the Delta variant, it has the potential to be as or more disruptive. And even apart from the new variant, COVID cases are on the rise globally, but particularly in Europe, with lockdowns and increased restrictions being announced including in Austria and the Netherlands. Eurozone economic releases bear out the impact of the resurgence in COVID cases, as well as ongoing supply chain disruptions. Eurozone consumer confidence and the German IFO survey continue to show a deterioration in sentiment. And although preliminary PMIs for October showed an uptick in both manufacturing and services, we expect the improvement to be short-lived as businesses and households increasingly feel the effects of this fourth wave of COVID cases. So a lot rides on how severe the most recent wave of COVID cases and this most recent COVID variant end up being. A variant that's more transmissible than Delta in the midst of a winter resurgence could put a significant damper on fourth quarter growth and on Fed aspirations to speed up the taper and subsequently lift off. On the other hand, if the new variant is less transmissible than Delta and or if existing vaccines prove effective against it, all this could wind up being a mere speed bump. With that in mind, we'll be watching these developments closely. That's all I have. Back to you, Jay. Thanks, Paul Dozier. Next up, we have Alan Lee, head of Guggenheim's municipal bond sector team, who will update us on developments in that market. Alan, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Jay. Going into year-end, conditions for the municipal market remain positive from both technical and credit perspectives. On the technical side, net inflows into mutual funds just exceeded $97 billion year-to-date, the highest total since 
record-keeping began in 1992. In the meantime, new issue supply remains anemic as we enter the seasonally heavy period for principal and interest payments in December and January. Thus, the market retains the supply and demand imbalance that has been in place for much of 2021, keeping valuations rich uh, if we look at ratios of tax-exempt yields to Treasury yields. Despite recent volatility in the Treasury market, most municipal bonds with maturities inside 10 years carry yields that are less than 70% of the yields on Treasuries of comparable maturities. On the credit side, municipalities are in the enviable position of having excess funds on their balance sheets. Tax collections continue to exceed not only 2020 levels, but also 2019 receipts. And most states have barely spent half of the stimulus funding from the American Rescue Plan passed in March. Using California as an example, the state will generate back-to-back -back budgetary surpluses in fiscal years 2021 and 2022, despite its dependency on high beta capital gains taxes and corporate income taxes paid by a relatively narrow base of individual and corporate taxpayers, respectively. California's general fund reserves have recovered to 10% of annual revenues, just a touch below the 11% high watermark reached prior to the pandemic. Despite warnings of high default rates in the early days of COVID shutdowns, municipal defaults over the last 18 months have concentrated in just a handful of sectors, such as senior living, prioritized student housing, and project finance. We expect California and most other state and local governments to retain these revenue tailwinds into 2022. So all in all, conditions remain supportive for steady returns in the municipal market. Back to you, Jay. Thanks, Alan Lee. I was very fortunate to catch up with Brian DePaolo, who focuses on corporate loan strategies on the occasion of the 10th anniversary of the Guggenheim Floating Rate Strategies Fund. Let's listen. Welcome, Brian, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Great. Now, uh, Brian, I want to spend a few minutes to get your take on headline issues in credit. Uh, in general, to begin, uh, what are the fundamentals telling you right now about credit quality? Sure. So overall, fundamentals remain very strong, but there are some important caveats that I'll get into in a moment. We've been seeing very strong revenue and EBITDA growth over the last year. So uh, really strong now on a year-over-year -year basis since the first quarter, uh, most recently growing around 15 20% on the top line and around 10 to 15% on EBITDA across public filing entities in the loan universe. Unsurprisingly, then, we've seen leverage come down pretty materially across the sector, and at this point, uh, it's now below 2019 levels. And as a result, you know, you're seeing very low default rates, around 0.2% in the market, which is essentially on par with the lowest levels in history. And importantly, the pipeline for distress in the market is low, with only around a percent and a half of issuers or so trading below that critical 80 cents on the dollar threshold. There's just not a, not a lot of potential 
companies that will be likely to be in distress over the next kind of six to 12 months. And obviously, rating agencies have been taking notice of this. Um, given the improvement fundamentals, we've seen upgrades across the markets currently taking place at at least two times the rate of downgrades since March. And that's far more than inverted from what we were seeing last year when we had at 1.30 or 40 times the level um, of upgrades as we saw downgrades. And uh, what about the, uh, you know, tapering of QE that that might be, uh, you know, that, that certainly started and might be accelerating. You know, is that something that is of a concern for you and your team? So it is. Um, oh, I think although I think the impact of tighter monetary policy is manageable for the loan market as a whole. You know, on the one hand, the Fed is moving faster than market ex- expected only a few months ago and fading monetary stimulus will have an effect on earnings. That said, we think the economy is growing at a fast enough rate and the loan market is performing well enough to absorb it in aggregate. You know, on the other hand, rising rates do impact the ability of loan issuers to service their debt. So as the Fed hikes rates and LIBOR so for rise, we should see interest payments that loan issuers make on floating rate debt increase. You know, that said, the loan market currently has record high levels of interest coverage. So I wouldn't expect this to be a problem for most issuers. And, you know, um, we certainly spent a lot of time analyzing the cash flow profile of our businesses, both on a current and prospective forward-looking basis to make sure we account for that. So are there any other concerns kind of on a macro basis uh, that you and your team are looking at right now, Brian? Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned caveats at the beginning of my first comment. Uh, So although fundamentals remain exceptionally strong and we're seeing strong headline figures, We are seeing pretty meaningful margin compression across an array of industries driven by inflation and input prices, cost of labor, and some companies are also seeing top-line impacts from supply chain disruptions. Um, Inflation warnings have been particularly common from companies producing tangible goods, such as aviation-related businesses, housing, and the industrial spaces. So we've certainly been spending a lot of time on our team mitigating these impacts. We're looking closely at pass-through agreements that businesses have the ability to pass on costs, the lag time that's associated with those pass-through agreements, and importantly, focusing on issuers that have differentiated products and therefore pricing power. That's always been something that we've preferred, especially on the latter point, uh, but it's increasingly important at this time, too. Let's move on to the technical side of the market. Um, We know that high-yield bond issuance is setting records in 2021. What's the supply story for bank loans right now? The supply story is is similarly robust, and in fact, you've been seeing the loan market take share from high yield as a result of some of the the beneficial features of the asset class and the strong demand you've been seeing for loan paper. Uh, So far, on a year-to-date basis, we've seen more than $590 billion of loan issuance, and that's up more than 125% from levels at this point in 2020. Some of that's obvious because of the pandemic, and some of it's related to the big uptick in M&A and LBO supply that we've seen so far this year. You know, private equity firms have record amounts of, of dry powder on hand. High purchase price multiples are attractive to sellers. You have potential tax law changes over the next year or two. And record low funding yields just also make debt financing attractive. So it's not surprising that we're seeing a lot of issuance. And much of that is also enabled by just very strong universal demand for the asset class. If you look at CLOs, which are the most important buyer uh, of the loan product, CLOs have done very well over the last couple of decades, now performing well through the last two crises, both the pandemic and the great financial crisis. Um, the arbitrage in CLOs remains attractive. You have over 200 open warehouses right now in the market. So you're seeing very steady demand there and record levels of CLO issuance. Uh, on the same token, we're also seeing strong demand across floating rate mutual funds. 
with the uh, expected uptick in rates over the next six, 12 months, and overall benign credit conditions, you've been seeing a lot of demand for the for loan product from retail investors. So when you take strong demand and strong demand for capital uh, on behalf of companies, uh, we've been seeing a lot of issuance. And fortunately, the, the balancing effects of those two, high supply, but also high demand, <clears throat> has kept new issue loan yields at pretty attractive levels. You know, we've been putting money to, to work at around four and a half percent yields in the market and as a whole. So that, you know, that, and that number has remained pretty steady for the last six to 12 months. Um, so how would you characterize yields uh, and, and credit spreads right now? And, and where do you think they might move from here, uh, given all the other changes we've talked about? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at the new, you know, new issue market, you know, you're seeing around four and a half percent yield on the single B portion of the loan market, at least where we're, where we're finding the best opportunities. Uh, a bit lower, around 3% or so on double Bs. So when you break down the opportunities in the market, we tend to find more attractive value on average in the new issue space right now. Uh, the secondary market offers similar yield, but is much less actionable than the primary um, due to not only the availability of paper, but also the tendency for some of the better known or higher quality names to trade above par. So uh, we tend to target characteristics in businesses as opposed to specific industries and have been finding value in healthcare, capital goods, services, and communications, uh, tend to focus on businesses with established market positions, differentiated value propositions, recurring cash flows, manageable CapEx burdens, and where we're comfortable with our position in the capital structure through a full economic or market cycle. What we're trying to do is make sure that regardless of how the, uh, the economy may move over the next few years, the value of the business will remain in excess of our position and the, the value of our position in the term loan. So that we would be paid back during any any tough patch. Sounds like good old-fashioned margin of safety. Yep, that's ultimately what it comes down to. Now, uh, Brian, as I said at the top of our chat, uh, the Floating Rate Strategies Fund is turning 10 uh, this month, uh, which is quite an achievement. Uh, tell us a little bit about the fund strategy and the kinds of assets that it holds. Sure. It's, it's fairly straightforward. So the, the fund targets floating rate loan issuers and also invest opportunistically in other floating rate plot products such as CLO debt and mortgages. We tend to run all of our strategies across the loan platform defensively versus the market, and particularly aiming to outperform during rough patches while still holding our own during times when the market uh, is robust. In general, though, Brian, as a portfolio manager and, and someone who, who you know, manages in the marketplace, you know, what do you think is the significance of a, of a 10-year track record, a milestone like this? Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you asked. And, and first off, I definitely, and the most important thing to do is acknowledge our appreciation for our investors and their willingness to allow us to invest on their behalf for so long. Ultimately, nothing has really changed about our investment process. We've been running money in a similar manner for the last 10 years now. And when you think about running a floating rate loan strategy and credit in general, it really comes down to selectivity and ensuring that your funnel is broad enough to provide choice to your investment team. It's also critical to roll up your sleeve when the market gets turbulent, not be afraid to engage with companies during times of market distress, and really identify periods of time like we're seeing today where the economy is doing very well, supply is robust, demand for the asset class is, ins is insatiable, and really stay true to our knitting, tighten our lending standards, underwrite for the next several years, not for the next six to 12 months, and take advantage of all that we've learned over the last two credit cycles. Well, good luck in the next 10 years, Brian. Uh, and uh, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Please come back and visit soon. Right. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. My thanks once again to Alan Lee, 
Paul Dozier, and Brian DePaolo. And congratulations to my colleagues on the 10th anniversary of three of our flagship funds. It's quite an achievement. And thanks to all of you for joining us for our new podcast. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership and videos, including the CIO Outlook by Scott Minard, our global CIO, visit GuggenheimInvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. The following disclosures relate to the funds mentioned on today's podcast. Read the fund's prospectus and summary prospectus, if available, carefully before investing. It contains the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and other information, which should be considered carefully before investing. Obtain a prospectus and summary prospectus, if available, at guggenheiminvestments.com. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. The funds may not be suitable for all investors. Investments in fixed income securities are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing the value of the fund securities and share price to decline. Fixed income securities with longer durations are subject to more volatility than those with shorter durations. High yield, below investment grade and unrated debt securities are subject to greater volatility and risk of default than investment grade bonds and may be less liquid. Some asset-backed securities, including mortgage-backed securities and CLOs, may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, causing their prices to be volatile. And they're subject to interest rate, credit, liquidity and valuation risks. Loan investments are often below investment grade or unrated and subject to special types of risks, including credit, interest rate, counterparty and prepayment risk. The fund's use of leverage through borrowings or instruments such as derivatives may cause the funds to be more volatile and riskier than if they'd not been leveraged. Dry powder refers to highly liquid assets, such as cash or money market instruments, that can be invested when more attractive investment opportunities arise. This podcast is directed to and intended for use by citizens or residents of the United States of America only. The referenced funds are distributed by Guggenheim Fund Distributors, LLC. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management business of Guggenheim Partners, LLC, or Guggenheim, which includes Guggenheim Partners Investment Management, or GPIM, the investment advisor to the referenced funds. Guggenheim Funds Distributors, LLC, is affiliated with Guggenheim and GPIM. Important Notices and Disclosures Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial, tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. This podcast contains opinions of the author, but not necessarily those of Guggenheim Partners or its subsidiaries. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. 
Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results.